Hello, and welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Greg Silverman, the Executive Director of the West Side Campaign Against Hunger in New York City. It's baked into our DNA because we're so focused on dignity, community, and choice for our customers. We have to do a better job of making sure that community exists for our staff, that dignity exists for those staff, and that people have choices and options related to their work-life balance, related to their efforts, related to how we proceed. Hello, and welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is Billy Shore. Thanks for joining our weekly podcast, which is usually about food and passion and making a difference in the world. But in the time of COVID-19, of course, we're all talking about only one thing, and that's the impact that this virus is having on our lives and how we're adapting to it. Uh, We have a guest today who is well-positioned to talk about exactly that. Greg Silverman worked with Share Our Strength for many years uh, as our Director of National Partnerships and also running our Cooking Matters in the Store program. He's a chef. Uh, He's been involved in food his entire life, and now he is the Executive Director of the West Side Campaign Against Hunger in New York City. Greg is sitting at ground zero of where the COVID-19 crisis has taken its greatest toll, Uh, and so we're here to hear and to learn from him today. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Uh, Greg, just let's start with the personal. How are you doing? How's your family? We're, we're doing all right. Having a, a two and a half year old at home is a, she feels like it's a vacation, I think, but it's tough for, right? Like, like everyone's dealing with two working parents trying to get their work done. And you're all, you're all pretty much uh, inside almost all the time. I'm assuming that's got to be the safest place to be. I'm not. I mean, I'm here at work at 86, uh, you know, at, at our location at, we're passing out food on the street right now with my team. Uh, I ride my bike every day to to and from work uh to get some fresh air and but you know we're we're essential personnel for this for this pandemic wow so talk to me about what that looks like so the west side campaign against hunger i've always known it as a um what i think as of as a kind of super state-of-the-art uh supermarket style pantry that uh aligns with what i think your philosophy is of uh serving food with dignity uh, now I'm assuming you're doing it in at least a somewhat different way, but talk to us a little bit about, you know, what the West side campaign against hunger looked like two months ago before all of this and what it looks like now. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of the turning point for us is I'd say Friday, March 13th is when it all flipped. So before that, you know, to your point, yeah, we're one of the largest pantries probably in America. We created the customer choice model, which means we run a grocery store for free. Almost 50% of our food that we've given out to our customers is fresh produce. We give out fresh meats as well, fresh milk. We have a mobile delivery service to community groups. We use a version of Open Table and simply let our you know our customers make reservations to visit online. Uh, so we're doing everything we can to get folks food, which is really actually from a restaurant parlance is actually more like the amuse bouche of a high end restaurant. the The main course is always and it continues to be getting people access to SNAP, health insurance, rent supports, immigration efforts, culinary training. So our social service support. So we, we have 24 full-time paid staff servicing uh, 20,000 customers a year. We have 1700 volunteers who work with us to make this work happen, give out 1.7 million pounds of food. And as of two weeks ago, you know, our pantry closed and we moved our, moved our operations onto the street. So in a sense, you close your core efforts with your refrigerators and your, your stock and how it's all organized and you build an entirely new model. Uh, within a few days and put it out on the street and you break it down and build it every single day on the street to keep it socially distant and keep it safe and for our staff and customers and everyone. 
Uh, we've our our pantry, our mo- our social service team has gone virtual. Our seventeen hundred volunteers do not exist anymore. We canceled that program for safety reasons. So we're just you know deeply you know neck deep in our team trying to distribute food to those who need it. So it sounds like when it was a supermarket. Um, you say 20,000 customers a year. That is pro- sounds like it must have been, I don't know, something like 15, 1,600 a month. So I'm envisioning, I don't know what, four or 500 people a week using it. Uh, is the usage still at that level or are people reticent to leave their homes? Uh, some people need to leave their homes to get food. How does it compare in terms of the uh, utilization? Yeah, I mean, our customers, you know, generally at 86th Street, we have a few hundred families shopping with us every single day. Uh, and then our mobile efforts, Every day, you know, whether it's with hospitals or senior centers, a couple hundred more families every day. So there's probably 500 families a day we're serving. Uh, we're seeing, interesting, we're seeing a lot of new customers, partly, right, this basic marketing. Because we are on the street, we are more visible. So folks in need are seeing our efforts and they're coming for food. At the same time, our seniors, mostly we're seeing a lot of our more elderly customers, right, they're, they're just having trouble and they don't they don't want to leave their homes for a variety of reasons. Uh, so we're right now we're, I'd say at 86th Street, we're sort of balanced our numbers. They haven't increased drastically, but our social service efforts through our voicemail and email and calls, you know, is is really backed up. And we're seeing this with our other pantries we work with across the city. Uh, social services uh, is really backed up, and you know, right? This is directly linked to restaurants closing and other businesses uh, across the country and what's happening with their staff. So that's where we're at right now. So, Greg, uh, in terms of your actual location, you mentioned 86th. Street, 86th and, and where? We're based on 86th and Broadway on the Upper West Side. Uh, that's where we've been for 40 years. We service, most of our customers don't come from the Upper West Side. They come from Washington Heights, Inwood, uh, East Harlem, South Bronx. So they sort of come down the subway lines to 86th and Broadway. Uh, and tell us a little bit about who they are, uh, Greg, in usual times or now, just like what their lives are like. Are they uh, working families? Are they undocumented families? Are they um, families with kids. What's how? How should we visualize the folks who need this type of uh, service? I mean, for us, our organization, we serve a majority Latino, Latinx uh, community. Uh, a vast majority are families. So uh, the we have about twenty eight percent who are seniors. So those folks, you know, they might not be part of a family in a traditional sense anymore of like having their own kids with them, but they are caregivers. They are very often caregivers for their grandchildren and great grandchildren. Uh, We see a lot of multi-generational families in poverty coming to visit us who have been with us for many, many years. So, And the underlying issue, again, leaving COVID aside for a moment, uh, the underlying issue for many of these families, is it the, is it the kind of the basic inequality that it plagues? So much of our society, the lack of economic opportunity for them in terms of their ability to maybe not fully be able to support themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think our families, uh, right, the, like this sort of simple side of food insecurity, they they need basic amounts of healthy food to sustain their families so they can live a normal, a normal life so that they can go out and get to work each day because many of them are working. They might be undocumented and working uh cash jobs, which means they're not going to get funds uh, through federal and other types of benefits. But many of our people are working, lots of part-time folks, and even seniors are trying to find ways to work. Uh, So we have the working poor who can't get by. Uh, Our culinary training program, we see this every day. Our students want to get the 
to move forward in their career, but they could never afford to go to a, uh, an educational institute that charges them money, right? But they want to advance their careers. They want to support their families. So you referred to uh, Friday, March 13th as the kind of the pivot point when everything changed. Take us inside in terms of your uh, team's deliberations. Was it obvious immediately that you were going to have to move everything outside? What was the what was kind of like going on in, in your war room? So a week before that, we, we started planning uh, pilots because our, our mobile effort we've built out over the last two years. We, we, can do, we know how to distribute food in a quick, fast, efficient, dignity-focused way. I mean, uh, but we started saying, let's, let's pilot in the week ahead a model to see what it would be like if we need to do this. So we started working on plans. And it's, at the same time, uh, a... a a staff member uh, of the church where we're based was in contact with someone who had the virus and therefore we, we shut the entire building down. Uh, and so we were like, well, I guess the pilot's happening faster than we thought. So we shut the building down within two hours, rented a large truck, moved all of our food outside the building onto a truck. And by a, two days later, uh, had just started distributing everything on the street until the entire building was disinfected. So it was a very fast process. Uh, I mean, right, sometimes the best forms of, you know, not to make light of it, but like uh, the best innovations happen when you have to make these things on the fly. Yeah. And so and if, so if somebody uh, came to you now and said, uh, I need food, convince me that, uh, that this is a safe way to get it. What kind of procedures have you put in place to up the safety game? So our, our staff does intake of each customer. They're all scheduled in. We have them wait. They're all six feet apart uh, in line, but luckily we have online reservations, so we don't have too many people waiting early in the day. Uh, we have individual tables for customers to go up and take the food that is allotted to them. Uh, they have that space on their own. There's no one else with them. Our staff stands six feet back, and once the customer leaves, we restock that table. So, and we keep rotating through the different tables. In other words, to to keep the social distancing, we have hand sanitizer, we have rapid hand washing, we have everyone's wearing their basic sanitation processes of gloves and hats and aprons as well. And and so, we're doing everything that you know. If we look at further at CDC or New York City policies, uh, to make sure that our staff and our customers and the community is safe. Hi, I'm Paul Woodhull, but you can call me Woody. I've been blessed with the opportunity to produce Ad Passion and Stir over the past few years and to work with Billy, Debbie, and all of the great people at Share Strength on the No Kid Hungry campaign. Every podcast we produce provides me with insight and uplift in trying times. But in the three years that we've been producing Ad Passion and Stir, there's never been a moment like the one we face right now. As I record this message, over 168 million meals have been missed just in the past two weeks by at-risk children who rely on free and reduced school lunch and breakfast. It's a frightening number that is overshadowed by the importance and consequence of the pandemic crisis. But the consequences of childhood hunger are just as dire, and the aftershocks to the millions of kids who are missing the meals they rely on schools to provide will reverberate through our country for years. But there is good news. The No Kid Hungry campaign is distributing millions of dollars in grants to the people and organizations on the front lines of childhood hunger, innovating solutions to make sure that all children are fed, even in the face of the coronavirus crisis. Please, go to nokidhungry.org. That's nokidhungry.org. 
to make a donation or to apply for a grant in your community. Even just $1 will provide 10 nutritious meals to hungry and at-risk kids. Please, help us help them. And share this podcast with your friends, neighbors, and communities so together we can end childhood hunger in America. Thank you. For your customers, um, any criteria? Or is it no questions asked? Anybody can be a customer? Anyone can be a customer because you never know what situation in life someone's in. I mean, our only push is that we we do do an intake interview with each customer so we can find out what are all the things they really need besides just food. So we want to find out a bit more about people so we can get them further city, state, federal supports, whether it's rent abatements or SNAP or health insurance, you know, or immigration supports. And is that something your customers are open to, wary of, uh, embracing, resisting? How does it work? Or is, or is it hard to generalize? No, our customers in general, like appreciate it because they know, you know, you know, when someone gets $6,000, for example, like three months of their family's rent, you know, wiped off the books because we were able to help make that happen. Like people understand the value of that, right? People, it's just hard to navigate the social safety net as fraying and weak as it is in America. Uh, but more recently, you know, in the last two years related to the federal administration, because we have so many mixed immigration households, we have a lot of families who don't want to be in our database because they're afraid that it's going to count against them uh, and make them into a public charge and count against them in, when they want to become citizens or that, that ICE will come to their homes. So we have a lot of fearful people who want more food from our pantry, but don't want the benefits that are out there. In terms of the families who are comfortable being in the database, uh, any family or story stand out in terms of somebody that um, that the West Side Campaign Against Hunger has made a, a difference in their lives by getting them the social services they need? I'm just wondering if we can go from the kind of the you know, the abstract to the, to the personal. Yeah. I mean, I'd actually flip it and say, cause, cause we're such, we're so focused on community. I mean, my, like Mar Martina is uh, a customer, a longstanding customer. She has children who have been incarcerated. She has health issues, diabetes. She needs a, uh, a knee trans, uh, uh, a total knee replacement. Uh, and she comes in every Friday to cook for our customers, for our customer volunteers. And, uh, so she was a she was a beneficiary of the services and is now working with you. This is this is what who we are, right? We have a number of amazing customers who volunteer their time with us. So Martina not only volunteers with us to cook lunch, but she brings food home to her elderly neighbors. She also is uh, one of the few, the proud, the Cooking Matters Hall of Fame members. Uh, for doing so many grocery store tours, and she is in dire need and has huge health issues, but she knows that. The food we provide helps her family. And she also will tell, has told me like the community that we've created is what has actually helped her with her other issues in her life. And I think that's the important thing. It's not just about handing people some calories, right? Like we're not in a refugee camp scenario. We're in a scenario where people need community. Uh, we have millions of people in poverty and we need to find a way not just to give them a handout, but that sort of hand up. And sometimes that's just giving people the opportunity to give back, which is a super big struggle for us right now because we've had to cut back our volunteers for safety reasons. We've had to keep people who have health issues and or seniors from volunteering. And these, this is a lifeline for a lot of people. How long can you keep this going? I mean, we've been at it for 40 years and, and hunger in America is, hasn't gone anywhere, right? Not, I'm not trying to lambaste my own work, but right, the anti-hunger community has has done a good job of doing good work and we can keep doing good work for, for 
all of the all, for all our days of humanity, the question will be when will we all start doing great work? Uh, and I, I think what's what we're trying to do is to do more collaborative work across the city to push the needle and move things further faster, so we can keep doing this work. As long you know, obviously we're the tip of the spear when it comes to what donations are coming in for uh, food. So we are getting more support than we've ever had. But at the same time, we need to think bigger and we can't just be worrying about handing people bags of food because people need much, much more. And even in the midst of, um, of the coronavirus crisis, uh, even in the midst of COVID-19, you can keep going uh, and or will you need to kind of keep adapting? In other words, are you able to, you know, none of us have a crystal ball, but I know at Share Strength, we're constantly kind of looking around the corner because the way we were feeding kids yesterday uh, outside of schools changed when one uh, worker uh, tested positive and we can no longer use, you know, even the school uh, personnel. We had to switch to YMCAs in some cities, things like that. Are there um, additional adaptations that you you see coming? I mean, I'll go back to the, one of the quotes from that I live by from my time at Share of Strength, which is the only constant is change. And so we live by a model of like, we're all about not innovating for innovating sake, but like we have to keep dealing with, no one would have thought two years ago that the social safety net would be shifted the way it was with the current administration. No one would have thought the cuts to school meals would be thought about, the cuts to SNAP would be thought about. So we've had to innovate there. I think COVID has pushed us forward in, in our strategic process that we looked at for planning for growth, which was about more collaboration, more indirect support, and more engage, engagement across the network. So for example, right now, every Monday, I meet with five of the other largest food pantries in the city, their executive directors, and we're sharing best practice and we're figuring out how to get more food, not just for each other, but to the entire network and to partners who are going out of business. So this, this, you know, there's always in much adversity, there's opportunity. And we have to use this to say like, we haven't moved fast enough. We haven't worked hard enough and we haven't been smart enough in, in fighting hunger. And I think this is the time for us to, to, to keep pushing forward. And, and my team is excited about that, right? This is an opportunity to do, to do great work as opposed to just doing good work. Let's talk about your team and your role as leader. There are more burdens on leadership in this moment than there have been for many of us. Many of our teams are stretched thin. Uh, they're concerned about their own health. They're scared. Uh, they're dealing with economic issues. In what ways have you had to rethink your your leadership responsibilities? Yeah, I think that's where we're making the, the most uh, rapid fire changes, right? It's hard to, we're not used to having part of our team working remotely. We're not used to having staff, you know, feel that they're putting their lives on the line. Uh, no matter what our safety concerns are and that they have, you know, they don't can't use childcare because their families are stuck at home. There's, so we've, we've been trying to be more, you know, very flexible. I mean, I will say WISCA, I would say in best practice, right? We pay a hundred percent of our staff, every staff member's health insurance. We pay well beyond a livable wage. We stay above, above in that, those areas. We give incredible amount of vacation and paid time off. And now we're giving extra pay for uh, frontline workers every day. We're rotating staff, so they have an, a day off outside within their normal full time. Like that, twenty percent of that time is not working, and that they're actually home. Uh, that we're rotating who's in person and who's working remotely. We're trying to find other ways to do to bring social service supports for our staff in. So we just the the in some sense it's baked into our DNA because we're so focused on dignity, community, and choice for our customers. We. 
we've been talking about it the last year and where this is fast forwarding it to say like, we have to do a better job of making sure that community exists for our staff, that dignity exists for those staff and that people have choices and options related to their work-life balance, related to their efforts, related to how we proceed. So I think we're just so focused on making sure each and every staff member has the same dignity, community, and the choices in their lives related to work that our customers do. Uh, it's it's tough to build team and community uh, virtually. And uh, Greg, just to be clear for our listeners, when you say WISCA, you're using the acronym for West Side Campaign Against Hunger. Yeah, we. I mean, I'll be honest, right? It's it's not one of the best names that exists. The West Side Campaign Against Hunger, better known as the WISCA. Uh, but we we, we it, it, it is one of the best organizations yeah, that exists. We, so. we, we try, and I've you know I've, there's there's many things I've been working on to to push fast and hard at WISCA over my over three years here, but uh, th- the name still eludes me. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that might that might have to wait for uh, another day to fix that. Just given all that's going on, y- you also mentioned working with four or five other. Uh, uh, emergency food pantries, uh, feeling pretty much everybody's in the same boat. A lot of a lot of commonality in terms of what people are dealing with right now. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, we're we're so in lockstep. Uh, I've, we built a collective purchase model across the city to get more good food to uh, people in need and to get more food from farm fresh product at a better price. And so we started there and now we talk on all kinds of issues. We're thinking about collective and collaborative HR, uh, how we do mobile distribution together. We're just seeing that there's commonalities. We're all seeing more new customers the last few weeks and less seniors visiting. We're all seeing right donations coming in in very strong ways. We're sharing grant portals for each other, uh, but we're all in the same boat and all having staff issues related to, you know, just stress, fear, uh, apprehension, exhaustion. Made a couple references to uh, mobile services. Uh, is that a mobile van? How does that work compared to the usual supermarket or even the outdoor setup that you have now? Yeah, we have a it's a 32 foot long mobile grocery store that people traditionally we go to a community member site and we flip the side open and it has fresh fruits and vegetables and meats and such and people shop from the side of that truck. Uh, the best example would be New York Presbyterian Hospital. They screen families uh, for right social determinants of health. If a family uh, with a mom who has kids between zero and five screens positive for food insecurity, they shop with us twice a week. We pull up at the clinic. So when they're doing their clinic visits, and then they can pick out the foods that they want for their families. Uh, under this new right situation with COVID, we, we've pre-bagged the food, but it's the same exact foods and the same exact model that we use uh, at 86th Street. It feels like in a lot of ways, your operating philosophy, and this would not surprise me, uh, is similar to ours in that uh, it, it's a matter of identifying whatever barrier exists between a uh, hungry family uh, and a healthy meal and just knocking that barrier down um, because they kind of, they keep popping up. We have to keep ad- adapting, but it sounds like you have uh, just made this determination that whatever the barrier is, you're, you're going to take it away so families can access this food with the dignity and the choice that you've described. Yeah, I mean, it totally is from my time at Share Our Strength, right? I, I like, right, all credit to my time at Share Our Strength. And I still feel like I work there in some ways. Uh, that, you know, just the idea of, right, bringing food to people instead of people to food, right? Like, how does summer meal, how do you make summer meals more effective? Get rid of congregate feeding. You know, this is perfect for COVID, but it's also perfect for emergency feeding. Why we built out a mobile truck? Because why would you make seniors travel all over New York City? to go get food when everyone else with means is getting it delivered. Like let's bring food to people where they live, learn and play. I was on the phone with New York uh, 
taxi commission this week, thinking about how we can deliver food to people in their homes, right? We have 90% of taxis are not running right now in New York City because there's no fares. So we got drivers and we got vehicles and we got food and we have people who don't want to leave their homes. So let's get the food to them. I like the way you think about it. Last thing I wanted to ask you, Greg, uh, you talked about the culinary training program. I'm assuming that's on a uh, on a pause or a hiatus, but uh, it's probably one of the important steps up that you provide folks. And of course, you've got uh, origins as a chef. And if anyone knows how to uh, teach people to cook and to cook well, it would be you and, and your team. Uh, just give us a sense of what that program looks like um, in the best of times. Yeah, in the best of times, we run uh, a 14-week full-time culinary training program. So giving people the tools and skills so they can get a job in food service. So we call it culinary pathways because right, the, the goal isn't to get people in high-end restaurants. I'll be honest. As a chef who worked in and owned restaurants for a number of years, like putting what we had, uh, you know, putting a 21-year-old mother, mo- single mom with two kids in a Michelin-starred restaurant working nights and weekends is not actually the best fit or the best setting them up for success. So we've been working a lot more with caterers and school foods and senior centers, uh, giving people skills related to doing demos and working in warehousing and food, just giving people the tools that they need to get a, a sustainable job uh, with good benefits and good pay, because that's what we need to do to lift people out of poverty. So we have about 60 people go through the program a year. We've suspended the program in the short term, and we hope this summer we'll have the next cohort of about 20 students come through for the free program. Sounds like an amazing program. What do you what do you call it? Is it just called the culinary training program? We call it culinary pathways. Here's a question I should know the answer to, uh, but I don't, and I'm hoping you do. I know our teams were talking about uh, share strength being able to, um, particularly in response to the COVID crisis, uh, being able to support uh, the work of the West Side campaign against hunger. Has that happened yet? I know that there was some waiting on grant applications and so forth. If it, hap- if it hasn't happened, what should we be doing? Uh, tell us for everybody to hear because I want to make sure that we get on the on the program here. Right. I mean, obviously, we're thankful we applied, uh, I think, just yesterday to for grants for, for No Kid Hungry support because you have an amazing grant portal. And we applied with Children's Aid Society to help that organization support their their community of customers. So they have people in need. We have food and the model to get food to them. So through partnership, we're, we know that we can feed more people. Uh, we're doing the same thing right now. We'll use some funds for, uh, with Bell, you know, with New York hospitals at Bellevue, every single person who leaves those hospitals in the coming weeks, uh, when they get let go, we want them going home with bags of fresh, fresh food. So we're going to send people home. So they're food secure when they get home. Uh, for Wiska in general, and I, you know, I say to anyone like, right, my organization, Westside Campaign Against Hunger, happy to have people's financial support, but like go into your communities, find your local emergency food provider, your food pantries, your soup kitchens. They need support at a level that you haven't given before. And so wherever you are, you know, if you're given to Wiska, that's great. But if you're given to another version of Wiska around the country, uh, that's great too. Well, I hope you're seeing an increase in uh, generosity. We are. It's, it may be a little bit easier for Shower Strength since we're a, you know, a national organization. Uh, but I'm delighted that you've applied for a grant. We're, as you probably know, uh, making grants of uh, at least a million dollars a week to you know dozens and dozens of organizations around the country who are doing the work that you're doing. We like to think we're picking the best organizations. I know that uh, the Westside Campaign Against Hunger is one of the best, um, thanks in large part to your leadership. Uh, if you don't hear from us 
in a timely way, <laughs> make sure and let me know. Um, because this is, uh, you know, what, what we exist to do right now. And it's not our normal work, which is, you know, funding school meals programs. But what we exist to do now is to make sure that we replace uh, the meals that kids were getting at school. And we're doing that in partnerships with organizations like yours, with school districts, with food banks, with YMCAs. So um, we're going to maintain that urgency, uh, certainly uh, until we've distributed um, nine to $10 million that has come in the door pretty fast. We're going to get it out the door uh, just about as fast. And so um, let's stay in close touch on this. Well, we appreciate all your support. And, and I just, you know, just realize that you have a network and alumni network of folks who are, who are out here in the field as well, uh, pushing all the values and ideas that we've, that we gained in our time at Share Our Strength. So I appreciate it all. And Greg, give us your website so folks can find out how they can donate to you, how they can volunteer, how they can be supportive on a policy basis of things that you're advocating. Yeah, www.wisca.org, W-S-C-A-H dot O-R-G. Okay, and it's a good website. I've been on it, um, and I think folks can find a lot of information there about the work of the West Side Campaign Against Hunger. We've been talking to their executive director and one of my former colleagues uh, and a great leader, Greg Silverman. Thanks so much for being with us, Greg. Thank you. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir on behalf of our whole team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. My sister, Debbie Shore, who often is part of these podcasts, Kelly Griffin, um, Jason Wilson, the team on our communication staff, and our uh, fearless and relentless producer, Paul Woodle, Woody, uh, at District Productive. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Look forward to talking again soon. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.